Welcome to the Good People Podcast, where each episode we explore what it means to be good by talking to everyday heroes, philanthropists, altruists, and do-gooders. I'm Kelsey Timmerman, author of Where Am I Giving, a global venture exploring how to use your gifts and talents to make a difference. And once again, I'm joined by my friend, Jay Mormon. Jay, how's it going? Great. Uh, it's wonderful to be here. Um, star of the podcast. I know it's important for ratings. So <laughs> glad to participate. Yeah, I know you're just bitter because it says good people with Kelsey Timmerman. Well, somebody did of, mention that to me this well, week. When you came to me with this idea, Jay, yeah. you were like, Kelsey, <laughs> I want it to be, highlight your work and what you talk about. Yeah, I, meant, now, my, I meant my work. Oh, oh, and now you got a little bit more ego in it. You're like, I want it to be mine. <laughs> no, it's great. It's great where it is. I'm I don't sorry. need any more. I'm sorry I'm holding back your career <laughs> in podcasting. Yep. It's all right. So I'm really uh, excited about today's episode. Um, and it's going to be, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, gratitude first, then giving. And I, I think it's really important that we all kind of realize the gifts that we have been given before we can think about how to give. So I have a question for you, Jay. Like, when was a time, who was a person that did something, that, that, that uh, gave to you in a way that kind of has inspired you? And you think, you think you haven't forgotten and you, what, what, is, is, that, what is that noise in the background? <laughs> Don't, this is where you're editing it would be helpful if you did it. Um, gosh, for me, I, I, there's you know lots of lots of moments and people of inspiration, of course, like everyone else. Um, I can tell you one specific example um, that comes to mind is um, when when I was younger. I don't know how many years I was into my career, probably three or four. Um, had moved to Muncie, Indiana, and um, you know we weren't making a ton, and my wife was staying home with our first kid, and. Um, you know, by, by, by her choice, she wanted to be home and, but that means you cut your income in half. Those are some bootstrapping days. Those are some bootstrapping days. Right. Um, and, um, so I remember we had to go in, she or I, I don't remember, it may have been, may have been her, um, I think needed a cap or something, um, on a tooth. Well, we got the bill back and I'll, I'll never forget it. We got this bill back and it was, I don't know, seven, eight hundred dollars Right. And, um, which, which back then and that money was like $2,500 dollars a day. It felt like a ton. Yeah. Yeah. Back then the early 1900s, (laughs) not that older than you. Um, but, uh, it, it felt like a lot of money and I can remember Karen calling me at work and she was, you know, upset, visibly upset, crying about it and saying, you know, I don't know how we're going to do this. And I thought, I don't either. I don't know how we're going to, so it's due right now. So maybe we should go in and try to, to pay it. See if they'll give us a uh, an extension or a payment plan or something. And long story short, she also had a uh, um, a, a women's group here on a Friday, and uh, it was a small Bible study of friends she had, and uh, a great group of women, and many of those we still talk to today. Um, but um, she kind of broke down during that session and said, "Look, you know, this is God. I can't believe we got this, and we don't know what we're going to do, but we're going to work through it." And, all those things. Well, she goes in Monday to the dentist's office to say, hey, can we get on a pay? And the lady said, someone came in and paid that this morning. Wow. And she said, what? And they, it was anonymous. We didn't know who it was. <clears throat> um, and boy, it was just she, I, she and I just felt like the weight of the world was lifted. Yeah. You know, we didn't, we, we didn't have to worry about that. We didn't have to push it. We didn't have to try to figure it out. It was just gone. And it was so much money. I felt like, wow, somebody really did something here for us. We later found out who it was. We know who it was today. Yeah. <clears throat> and I have told the couple that did it, um, they've kind of inspired ideas I've had and money I've given since because 
I know that that amount of money now for me is not as big a deal, yep. right? But it is to somebody else. Mm -hmm. And if I can write a check to take that amount of weight off of someone's shoulders, weight much bigger than the dollars, yeah. right? Then I would do that. Um, and ever since then, every time I do something, give something, mm -hmm. whatever, like we all do, uh, I feel a little bit of that moment yeah. in me. How did you, how did you end up finding out who it was? I think we figured it out. Um, uh, just if I remember right, we should call, call Karen and get her involved in this. <laughs> I think we figured it out because of how this, this person I think reacted funny or something when like, Karen oh, said something. Really? Oh, oh. <laughs> did they take care of it in the morning? Uh, yeah. I don't know. I don't remember what it was, but there was something. Well. Yeah. Bad liars. Yeah. Karen yeah. was like, did you pay that? And she was like, yeah, we did. Yeah. M much later. It wasn't a, Hey, did yeah. anybody tell you about the bill I paid? It was much later and sort of removed. And, um, but yeah, it, it, it showed me what the feeling would be like. Mm -hmm. And it made me want to give that feeling, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I've definitely been in similar circumstances to that. I have yeah. had, um, people just, you know, mysteriously help out mm -hmm. gotten, money in the mail yeah and yeah. realize like did we say something about the situation we're in <laughs> just like magically yeah. appear you know being a um a, a single income uh, author supporting mm. a family has had some challenges in the past but to me the experience when i think about this it's kind of a it's kind of a big one um when i was working as a scuba instructor in key west i had to tie up to this shipwreck for these um, tech divers, and tech divers are people that, that they're going really deep. They have special mixes in their tanks, and yeah. not just traditional air. You know, so they're not they're not, they're not water tourists. They're actually they're doing some work down yeah. there or something. Well, they were. I mean, it's still kind of recreational tech diving, oh, okay. but like yeah. the whole point is to go beyond deep. the limits that yeah. a normal scuba diver would go. Yeah, got it. But me as a new, normal scuba diver working on this boat, I had to tie up to this shipwreck first and it was in about 150 feet of the water. I think the deck was at 130 feet. Really, you shouldn't go any deeper than, really need to go any deeper than 100. So I jump in all by myself, which again, you're not really supposed to do. But uh, hey, I'm working on this is what, you know, That's they're all I there. Do. Everyone knows I'm doing this. I'm jumping in the water. And I go down there and uh, I had done it before, but it was different this time. The rope, there was a, a rope line that was on the caught on the deck so i had to swim down to the deck to get the the line oh, so it was at 150 feet someone else's line yeah yeah so there was a current and i was kicking and there's something called nitrogen narcosis where you just like don't remember stuff like mm -hmm. there's parts and that's what happened to me i i just don't remember I, I remember being underwater and looking at my air thinking huh i'm i'm gonna run out of air but i shouldn't go up because i've been i'm too deep and just like that was my, my logic. And I just hung out and like minutes went by. Like, and I was just like gradually running out of air. <laughs> so, and the boat was just up there wondering where the heck is Kelsey. So the captain saw my bubbles, um, which was pretty significant. So he saw my bubbles. And then um, the, one of the heads of the tech divers jumped in the water and just swam down to me. He's like, hey, you want to think about coming up? <laughs> which is a pretty simple, you know, not some great heroic. Yeah, act. but it breaks your brain out yeah, of this. Yeah, like, oh. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I need to come up right I now. I should come up. And then I came up, and then I ended up having the bends and had to go into a chamber. But, like, yeah. so the bends were the least of my worries. It was, like, being 150 feet underwater, and running dead. out of air. Like, <clears throat> then you're toast. Yeah. Like if, then if I ran out of air and swam the surface, I would die. Like, and they, and if they hadn't seen you yeah. or or taken the risk to go down there, yeah. they could have just so, said, well. you know, 
uh, I think about that. I think about people in my life, and there are a lot of people who've influenced us, I'm sure, um, whether just inspired us in some way or uh, literally saved our lives in some way. Um, that Why are we getting all these text messages, Jay? It's, we're all we're it's, assuming the same text. It's our, it's our friend group. Oh, gosh. Annie's inappropriate. <laughs> so... Um, here we are trying to, trying to have this good conversation. I know. About and Annie, your wife, again, is messing it up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And she's not even here. It's true. So, um, yeah, and I, it's easy sometimes, I think, to lose sight of all the people. I think about a piano teacher I had who yeah. who I was a horrible piano teacher, and but she there was a basketball game in seventh grade, and we were playing this team. There were all eighth graders who got held back. <laughs> And we were just going to get our butts kicked. And I was the only one that could dribble the ball off the floor. And they were going to full court press. And I mm. knew I just had to – this was facing me. I was so depressed. And she she kind of got me pumped up for the game. Really? And to go into this situation that was just going to be a nightmare and made it easier for me to, to face tough things. I think. Yeah, yeah. And just that one lesson, that one game. You haven't th- forgotten about no. it. Stuck with you. And we have yeah. mentors or like that. Or people we just bump into in our lives. Yeah. Who kind of do that. Um, yeah. Examples. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I was recently at uh, Indian Hills High School in Cincinnati. Okay. And this is the second year in a row I've talked there. And last year when I was there, I happened to hear the speaker before me, uh, a man named Roger Grine. And amazing guy. Amazing life. And um, I got to hear him this year again, too. So this year I was like, hey, can I record your talk, Roger? Because I, I have this wildly successful podcast. Mm. And I'm sure I could sell lots of sponsorships. Yeah. Are you, and you're going to that next? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so I recorded his conversation. So we're going to hear a little bit of Roger's story yeah. today. Um, but, I, I, but we both listened to it. Yep. And I thought maybe the two of us beforehand could share it. Um, the qualities not the best of the podcast. Yeah, if there was a if there was a Grammy for worst audio recording, this is the second episode you would win. Rosie's was first. Yeah. Great content. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like, Rosie's but it was my phone on my and I was writing on it with my journal was on my phone and I was writing on it. So that, that one, was probably the That's worst. probably the winner, yeah, but that this is this is close. <laughs> this one is basically my recorder was on my lap. But hey, people should you got to folks, you got to put on your headphones. This is a podcast. Yeah. You want to feel intimate in your podcasting, right? You got to listen <laughs> yeah. that way. You can't put it on the kitchen while you're frying bacon. You got to put your headphones on and listen up. I'm Concentrate. Not, I'm not sure this one, the audio, you can mow your yard, which is why I listen to a lot of my podcasts because yeah. I mow too much yard. Yeah. Um, well, someday my, when we have a big budget, we'll have a studio that does yeah. all this and uh, we'll go from there. But I think if you put your headphones on seriously and spend a moment not doing other things and listen, this yeah. will mean something. I think it's he has a... Uh, a really distinct voice, and he has a really important story for us all to hear. So uh, I encourage everyone to, you know, you listen to the first 20, 30 seconds, and you're maybe having trouble quite hearing what he's saying. Stick. You'll get used to it. Yeah. You'll get used to it. And But let's talk about a little bit. One of the reasons he's hard to hear is because of his age and his condition. Yeah. Right. So, so you could talk about that. Roger is 75, and he um, was, uh, as later on as a kid, he was like, diagnosed with cerebral palsy. Right. Which affects you know muscles in, in your body, um, so but you know from the very get go, Roger was born into a life and world of challenges, 
So in, in his talk, he talks about how he was conceived on, what was it, the Pearl Harbor Day? Or, yeah, it's like, yeah. wow, that's a lot. That's a significant information. I don't know what day I was conceived. No, I don't no, really it's very to, specific. <laughs> very specific. <laughs> so, um, and I don't think they were expecting to have a child. Yeah. And his mom got pregnant, and uh, there was people that thought that she should have an abortion. Now, this, Roger's 75. So now. this was a long time this ago. This was a long time ago. So uh, what abortion looked like 75 years ago, I have no idea. Yeah. But there was a woman... They were actually taking him. Someone was coming to get them to take them to the abortion, um, and or take his mom. And this woman, her friend Emma, said, "No, you're not mm. taking her. You're not taking this baby." Yeah. And then uh, he was put up for adoption. Right. And he was adopted by um, uh, the, the Grinds, and they. Um, he tells a story about his mom taking him to get his first. Uh, to, to the doctor's appointment and the doctor's like well he has a brain like a, a miswired light bulb or something like that he should never drive and as soon as they walk out she hands him the keys and like you're driving <laughs> and that was the attitude that he took into a lot of his life a lot of people were telling Roger that there were things that he couldn't do right and he started to mow yards mm-hmm. and before long he was mowing like 20 or 30 yards yeah. Yeah. saved up money um, started to do snow, started to, uh, he started to do accounting, ended up doing like taxes for like 2000 people. Yeah. Became a softball coach and has coached around the world. Uh, this team that was like basically the bad news bears, uh, for a few years, they became like state city champions in Cincinnati then state champions in Ohio, the national champions and international champions. And Roger, was their coach because the coach before had been fired or quit. And they're like, hey, Roger, would you do this? He was the manager on the team. And so he's always just stepping into situations. And I wonder if, you know, Roger does have uh, certain limitations, um, but the focus and drive Mm -hmm. that he had. He just didn't know the word no. He just, there was nothing that would get in his way. Um, Even when he talked about trying out, I think it was the basketball team, maybe. And he uh, he said he was you know everybody made it but him, mm-hmm. and you can see why with this yep. uh, with who he is and physically who he might be, um, and uh, and then he's the manager, you know or the water boy to start right. He just was like I'm going to get in I'm going to get in the canoe and paddle anyway yep. and see where it takes me. And I thought that was really interesting, and that goes all the way to and you're probably going to get to this all the way to when he started raising money. Um, yeah. that he just kind of took the same path, which is, this has nothing to do with me, but I'm going to ask everybody else. I know that support system and all those people to fund his, his, his idea. Yeah. I mean, he talks about through the years he's had, uh, he's choked on like meat, like tw- because of several was his condition yeah. like 20 times and had, had the Heimlich maneuver. Yeah. Like, here's someone that would not be alive. If not for these 20 people, yeah. Having known the Heimlich maneuver, yeah. and stepped away from their meal, their conversation, and and and, and did something. Yeah. Um, so Roger saved up money through the years and lived simply. And this guy that a lot of people didn't expect a lot of made a significant amount of money and mm-hmm. saved a significant amount of money. Mm-hmm. And then he started to uh, give give it away. Right. Um, and so he started a story called Magnified Giving. And it works in high schools, and they give uh, high schools like thousand dollars for groups of kids then to decide on 
who they want to give to. So the day I was at Indian Hills, that's what was happening. So they were, they had been, worked with Roger for a few years, and he was introducing the program to them. And then right after he was done, there was a parade of local nonprofits, different soup kitchens or yeah. different, you know, they were going up there and they were, they had five minutes to share saying, what they did. Here's why you should give us money. Yeah. 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 To the, the kids who were then going to um, decide on where that money went. Yeah. Now, in the financial crisis, Roger had invested heavily in the stock market and he basically lost everything. Yeah. And, but Roger being Roger, you know, he just kept going on and other people started to give him, realizing that this guy who was doing such amazing work in their community and inspiring so much giving, he got like a million dollar donation and then other people started to give him money. Yeah. And this year, I think they're planning on giving away the, they have 4,200 students in the program from a hundred schools and they're going to award over $174,000 to local nonprofits this year alone. Um, so there are two things about this story that I really like. Um, the first one is, is how closely it ties to It's a Wonderful Life. Oh. <laughs> I, I, I love yeah. those stories. And I've seen it happen with friends, too, people that give a lot. And then when things happen to them, I notice other people r rushing yeah. to them. Whereas people call it karma, whatever you want. People that don't have that sort of thing, people are like, oh, yeah, I'm sorry that happened. But you just don't see them rush to their, to their aid. They probably should anyway, but they don't. Um, and I'm less motivated to as well, but he, uh, he has certainly built the sort of, um, um, uh, life that people want to follow and to contribute to. Um, and I find that inspiring. Right. And I, and I, I think we all hope that our, our influence around us causes people to feel like we're somebody worth investing in if something were to be catastrophic. Mm -hmm. Um, the second part about it that I like is something you and I have talked about. You know, we even sat down and talked to who do we get on the podcast to talk about teaching younger children, younger people, even up through teenagers, close to adults, young adults, how to give, how to be altruistic, how to, uh, to save what to do with that money. And the, the numbers in comparison to like United way or something, his numbers are very small, but, but he is taking a bunch of people in that moment in their lives, right before they go to college or while they're in college. They're going to get jobs and they're going to start out their lives. And I think that group of people are going to think differently, differently than I did at that age. Cause mm -hmm. I had no thoughts about that at all. None. Yep. Um, not really. I was too worried about whether I could buy a car. Um, but he's teaching them to think about how to, how to spend their money and who to give it to and why you would do that and what it means. And then, like I said earlier, they're going to learn the feeling of it. Mm -hmm. Um, so the, the $300,000, the million dollars, the, you know, whatever their base funding is right now, it won't be in his group. It'll be in some other charities or some other giving mm -hmm. somewhere else. It's going to be a billion dollars eventually. Yeah. The giving that he inspires. Yeah. Those kids. Yeah. The, yeah. I, I, that is a really cool part of the story. Yeah. Um, and, and he's leveraging them at the perfect time of their lives. And I think the, the messenger matters too. Um, mm -hmm. Roger walks out on stage and he shuffles his feet and you worry that at any moment he's going to trip Yeah, and I don't think if, if he tripped he, he would just get back up yeah. and, and keep on going and not that's a good metaphor for everything yeah. for him and then he gets to the microphone and he starts to talk and you know at first you're trying it takes a little bit for you to adjust to yeah. be able to hear his message but I, I you know, you, you see Roger and you see the challenges that he has faced. And then you ask yourself, if he can do that, 
well, why can't I? So he's a perfect messenger for this. Maybe an unlikely messenger, um, but the perfect messenger for this message, especially to reach students. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's 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 different than. Of course, I've been watching the Righteous Gemstones on HBO, but it's <laughs> yeah. it's different than a uh, a rich uh, televangelist telling you to give money. This guy has has had failures, had support systems, uh, had need, and he's saying, "I've overcome all this other stuff, and I'm still thinking about other people." That's inspiring. Yeah. So much giving has gone into him. Yes, you know? and and it's passing through, him. and he's reflecting it right Just back. Going, yeah, 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 right yeah. back to the world. Yeah. So I'll read his official bio, and then I'll read the vision of magnified giving, uh, and then we'll share Roger's story. Or Roger will share his own story, and then uh, then we'll just that we the we won't yeah. have any commentary yep. after that. Um, so Roger is a successful businessman. Uh, I said that weird. Roger's a, a successful businessman, internationally recognized softball coach, one of Cincinnati's great uh, philanthropy ambassadors and founder of magnified giving an entrepreneur since age seven, Roger made his first significant philanthropic, I can't read contribution as a young teenager and has been freely giving of his time, talent and treasure for the past 60 years as a founder and coach of Jake Sweeney girls softball team. His teams won regional state national and world championships. Roger has an amazing and inspirational story in many ways. This isn't his official bio, but like, like all of a sudden you add the softball piece where he's like coaching teams around the world. Yeah. And it almost has like this, uh, Forrest Gump quality. Like what? Yeah. You, you he do... ran across the country. Oh, really? And then this, I did this other thing that yeah. is, seems like to be this like tangent from the rest of his story. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll share the vision of magnified giving. So you can go to magnifiedgiving.org to learn more about it. It's a uh, Cincinnati based, but they hope to, to grow beyond Cincinnati. So here's, um, here it is. The vision for Magnified Giving is for every high school student in America, starting with the greater Cincinnati and northern Kentucky regions, to someday have the opportunity to learn firsthand how to be generous and wise philanthropists and have the graduates of the program educate, inspire, and engage the next generation of students. And I saw it firsthand. Roger is definitely doing these things. That is great. Yeah. Generous and wise. That's kind of the words I think of when I think of you, Kelsey. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, I don't think that's quite. I, I feel like that's not. I feel like you're making fun of me, Jay. <laughs> hey, I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> so, without further ado, uh, Roger Grant. That money for magnified giving, and there would be no magnified giving without its founder, Mr. Roger Grind, and he tries to go personally to as many schools as he can to welcome you into the program and to tell his story. So that's what you're gonna to get to hear now. So I'm gonna turn it over to Mr. Roger Grant. Thank you. Uh, I'm very excited to be here this afternoon. And I look, I, you got a wonderful picture and I'm sure you'll be engaged and you find nonprofits and the needs of the community and put them make that tough decision who to help out because there's so many worthy causes and needs. But today I would like to share a little bit about me, because you're going to do the begging for giving problem over the next months. But so you know, at least in the next few minutes here, you'll find out about who's the founder of Megapunk, what's up about his life. We all have surprises in our life, don't we? Oh, yeah. 
Come on. Okay. Okay. I want to share two surprises with you this afternoon. The first surprise is somebody's written a book about my life, and also a movie. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and then uh, I call the book a surprise. It's because the last time I read a book, I was in school like you. It, it wasn't on my to-do list, or wish list, or any kind of list at all. But a few years ago, different people said, you should write a book. So I took out the prayers or something in my journey that could help other people out or inspire other people. So two things surfaced. One was sports and one was work. Anyone play sports in here, raise your hand. Oh, good. So we got a good sports. So maybe you can relate to this, my sports career. Uh, I grew up in a small town called Lockwood, Ohio, feeling about 10 miles west of here, and it was really like one square mile. And when I was growing up, I played in the neighborhood with all the kids my age, because we all knew each other. And the first organized sports team I tried out for was a junior, ba junior high basketball team. And everybody made the team except Roger. And you know what Roger did? What do you do? I tried. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because I mean, here are all your buddies is, that you play with now on the team, and you're 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 an outsider, and that yeah, that hurts because you want to be with your friends. So a few days after the class, the coach of the team was just the teacher there. Remember, the teacher picked up on on that. So the teacher asked me if I wanted to be the manager of the water boy. I said, sure, because I got a blind and I was all my friends. So through junior high and high school, I did all the sports. In fact, a few years ago at Lachlan, they put a new turf field on the football field, and they named it after me. So the 20-year line, it says Brian Field. That's me. How about that? And then, so then I went on to college. I was questionnaires on summer break. I was questioning first to play softball. And it was all high school girls your age. And the team was so poor that after one of the years, the coach got good and quit. And one of the players come up and asked if I would help out. And I said yes. And so I became the real coach instead of the water boy. And that's most high school players your age. So over the years, that whole church team became a select team, a freedom team, with players from all over the community tried out and played for the team. And we improved, and we tripled. We played like 80 to 100 games this summer. We played in Russia, Hawaii, Mexico, Sweden, all over the world. We won the city championship, the regional championship, the state championship, the world championship, and the national championship. All from the softball team that come win a game. Is that pretty neat? Yeah. <laughs> okay. And then the other thing when I think about is work. How did the work come about? Well, I work for me so that when I was six or seven years old, Back then, pop bottles and beer bottles were made of glass instead of plastic. 
and they would recycle. Well, you got two cents for a pop of nickel for a beer bottle. The people were lazy and threw them away. I would pick them up and take them to the store and get money. Then I used that money to buy a wagon. And I, so on the weekends, I would collect newspapers and magazines from people and recycle them and got money. Then it was in junior high, I used to use that money to buy a lawnmower. I started cutting the neighbor's grass. And I became known as a mower boy, like lawnmower. So I, right in the summer, I cut grass in the fall, rake leaves and shovel, snow in the wintertime. And I wound up doing 20, 30 yards a week. And so, and, and I did that through junior high, high school, and college. And then I, when I was your age, making this money, I thought, what do people do with money? I thought, hey, invest in stocks and bonds and securities. And I didn't know anything about that. They didn't offer it in school. But luckily, being a small community, I cut grace for the principal, the mayor, and the superintendent. They were my age, and I was your age. They had an investment club, and they let me join the investment club. So I was buying stocks when I was your age. When I was your age, the stock market closed at 3 o'clock. School was over at 3.30. There was no cell phones. Uh, so I had to ask the teacher to go to the superintendent's office to use the phone to call the stock market to buy stocks. And then those securities increased over the years, and that propelled the funds to start by giving, well, we empower you with funds to discover the needs of others, then make a tough decision on who's worthy of those funds. So I thought because I like stocks, I would go to college and major in finance and become a stockbroker. So I did it and I graduated. Then the real world opened up to me. The railroad back then, when you're 21, 22 years old, it was hard to find a job in that occupation. You had to have a famous name, a wealthy family and friends, and I had neither. So after much effort, the local banker got me a job in the bank. And they put me in the tax department doing tax returns. And I worked there one year, and at the end of the year, they advised your work to give you like a teacher, they give me a grade. They fired me. They said my writing wasn't that clear, that I probably wouldn't progress. So once again, you're hurt because all your peers had jobs. And what can you do? Well, I could cut your grass, right? I could do your tax return, right? So I got a little business card made and put my name on it and pasted it around to the people I cut the grass for. So now I can do your tax return. So the first year I did 35 returns. Over the next four or five years, I wound up being a tax commissioner of three cities in town. Wound up doing almost 2,000 returns, having the staff of people working for me. So I've been a successful CPA now for over 53 years. I still do taxes. So thank you. So that's my work, and that's my sports. Now, I have a question for you. What's the common denominator that Roger had to, had to possess 
but succeed in sports and work. It's one word. Succeed in sports and work. What ingredient in my heart? What, what did I have to have to succeed in sports and work? It's the same word. Anybody want to take a guess? This, what did, what, yes. Hard work, that's for sure. Any other? Yes. Motivation, that's right. Anything else? Yes. You're right. Determination, never give up. Perseverance. I mean, it would be easy to give up, but this determination, you know, sticking with it. Uh, I know, looking back as an adult now on that situation, I, I think that's how we grow in wisdom, understanding, and compassion. You know, if something happened to us and we overcome it, hopefully if a friend of ours will have a similar situation, we're more apt to listen to them, understand them, maybe help them out. Does that make sense? But, you know, not that we desire setback, but I think that's part of our journey. But I did say there's a couple of surprises. But then another surprise came in the form of a orphan, nine minutes later. I called Emma that saved my life from abortion. I was adopted when I was six months old, and my mother would walk me heel toe, heel toe, because I shuffled my feet. And then when I was your age, 16, I went to get a driver's license. And I, she took me to the top, top of the Rogers in Cincinnati, and uh, at the in an interview with me and mom, the doctor said, Rogers' mind is like a light bulb. It's got all these wires going to it, and his his short before somebody else's. So I don't want him to ever drive a car. It's unsafe. Well, my mother's name was Thelma, and she, when we walked out of the, the doctor's office, she handed me the car keys and said, to hell with him. And I've been driving a car for 60 years. How about that? Hey, that's your mother's wife, right? And, uh, and later on in my life, I found out that I had cerebral palsy, and I didn't know what that was. And here is a, a, an injury at birth that affects your motor skills, like your speech, your, your walking, your, your choking. So in my case, it affects all three. I've choked on meat over 20 times. And fortunately, someone there knew how to use a homily. If not, I wouldn't be standing here today, because they can't call the life squad. Because, well, they can, but you would be dead by the time they get there. So raise your hands if you know how to use a homily. Good. So the rest that don't, you'll, you'll have to find out, because they'll show you in 30 seconds. You never know how you could save a life in, in your career. And then, like I said, I was adopted. So a few years ago, I was adopted to the Catholic Social Services here in Cincinnati. So I went down to the main offices downtown, and they wrote me the birth records. And lo and behold, my birth parents lived in western part of Cincinnati. My birth mother's name was Dorothy Wang. 
My birth father was Bob Bowery, and so my birth mother lived in Thompson Road. No address, no phone number. 57 years old records. So that afternoon, I rode out to find Thompson Road, which I did. I thought I could say, well, I could have friends here, I went to school here, and there was an older lady out there could leave. And I thought she could be of my birth mother generation. So I pulled in the driveway and asked you, you know, Dorothy, my birth mother. And she said, sure, I went to school with her. So she pointed out, out the house that she lived in, and I went up and knocked on the door. A young lady answered, and uh, I asked, you know, Dorothy. She said, no, I bought the house from her estate. She fell down the steps, and the steps took her life. So I walked down and so felt where she fell. And, and then she said the neighbor lady found her. So I went to the neighbor's lady's house and, and she showed me the, a picture of my birth mother, Dorothy, and told me a lot of things about her and told me where she was buried. I went from her house to the cemetery to find her grave. So for 57 years, knowing that you were adopted with eight hours staying at your birth mother's grave, Ooh, it was overwhelming. There was a lot there to process, to internalize. And then my birth mother had a brother and sister. So that meant I had an uncle and aunt. So a couple of weeks later, I got the nerve to call my uncle home. Put two and two together, he knew his sister had a child at the wedlock. But nobody thinking after 50 some years, that child would show up. So they were so happy, they invited me over. We had a family reunion, so I have uncles and aunts and cousins, and I look like my, my, my grandpa, so whenever they have, uh, I'm part of the family now, so whenever they have a, a wedding or a baptism or whatever, I get to come, and I think their grandpa's coming alive again. That's pretty neat. And then when I was leaving, the telephone rang, and on the phone was Emma. She was my birth mother's best friend. And she was calling from the hospital in, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. She had been back to Cincinnati in over 10 years. She's 90 years old. She calls once or twice a year to keep up with the family. They put me on the phone with Emma. Emma tells me the whole story. I, I was conceived two weeks after Pearl Harbor uh, on Christmas Eve and the flicker in on Harrison Avenue. And my birth father's name was Bob, and he was telling my birth mother, Dorothy, there's no life here, this takes some action. So they agreed to meet at Emma's house. So Emma was telling me the story there, and Dorothy, my birth mother, and Bob, my birth father's coming up the steps. And Emma turns around to Dorothy, my birth mother, and says, Hey, you know, there is life here. Is this what you want to do? Unfortunately, she said, if it's, you know, if it's life here, I don't want to take this action. So when Bob, my birth father, got up the steps, she raised her fist and said, Get the heck out of here. You're not taking my life today. I'm crying. She's crying. She said, I never saw the... Another thought I would see a part of the boy I saved.
So she kept this to herself all these years. So the next day I called the airline and I've been out to see Emma five or six times. And then the final part, uh, the, the, and there was a birth father, so a couple of years ago, I tracked him down in South Bend, Indiana. And I went up cold turkey and unannounced and locked in the fourth door. Isn't that kind of exciting? People knocking the front door. And he answered the door. And here he'd been married 60 years, 6 the same lady. They had no children. They said they prayed for me all their life. They didn't know it was a boy or a girl until I knocked at the door. My God probably enjoyed it their life. So when I look back at my story, what messages do I take from that? Well, I think one is we all make difference in people's life, life orders to events or circumstances. You know, in my case, I must have three or four words. Uh, the school teacher, you want a bit of water to wake up and involved in sports, I've been involved in sports all my life. And the people that saved my life behind me. So you never know how, how you could touch a person's life by just being who you are. And of course, the other thing is the people that, particularly my mother that had me the car keys, you know, she empowered me to make a difference and go out and to see and help other people. So I'm now I'm passing the car keys to you, the children of the same, be an instrument of God's love to other people. So thank you very much for letting me share from who I am today with you. And what's the best of your journey to your life? Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Good People Podcast. Special thanks to my friend Jay Mormon for co-hosting and to Cliff Ritchie for the great tunes. You can listen to Cliff on Spotify or find him at cliffritchieyart.com. Let's keep the good going. Please share, rate, and subscribe. We'd love to hear from you. Visit kelseytimmerman.com slash goodpeople to find show notes, suggest guests, learn more about my books, and tell us about the good you are doing.